0: And now ladies and gentlemen, White Coats of the Round Table. Hi everyone, welcome to White Coats of the Round Table, a healthcare podcast focused on career burnout, non-clinical career options and other career development. I'm Mike Asback, and I'm here, as always, with John McDonald. John, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are we doing today? I'm great. We were just complaining. Today is Tuesday, and it's the first day back after the Labor Day weekend, so my office is chaotic and falling apart, but that's pretty normal for the first day back because usually it's a Monday, not a recording day.
1: This is also the the first week uh, kids are going back to school for a lot of places, so we've got our kids going on on Thursday. So it's the last two days trying to make the most of it. They're already up watching SpongeBob.
0: So. Yeah. Can we talk about how silly that is that because my kids go back Thursday as well. And it's really quite frustrating that they're not going. Historically, they've always gone back the Tuesday after Labor Day. And for some reason now they have these extra two days that are throwing uh, child care in chaos because our normal babysitters are back to college and it's kind of chaotic.
1: Yeah, it's so Thursday, them going back, it gives my wife and I a couple days to kind of, th- well, I should say this. This is the first time uh, since my wife and I started having kids that she'll be
0: out children. Their last that, one's going oh, into oh. high school this year. It's wild. Very cool. The The entering of a new phase. That's great. Well, let's get into the topic, John. So I'm really excited with back to school on our front of our mind. We thought today would be a good opportunity to discuss precepting. Now, maybe a year ago, it's kind of fun that we've been doing this long enough that we we feel the need to maybe circle back to topics and take a different approach. About a year ago, we did precepting in the sense of talking about how to have success with it. And then we also talked about some good precepting stories. But we wanted to circle back and tackle this topic again right around the start of the year where we have a new crop of students. I'm sure if you take students already as a healthcare professional, usually the fall is when the new batch starts. So you may have new students on clinical rotations. I know Mora, who was uh, on our show last week, she was in her first rotation. She was immensely impressive, but that was her first clinical rotation. So this is the time of year where you have new people coming. But I'd love to go back and forth and maybe just talk about the role of precepting, how you can be a good preceptor, but then also different ways that we can have success with it, not only just from a career development standpoint for us, but as the listener, but also for the student as well, making sure that you're setting up a rotation in a way that will allow the student to succeed. Let's start by differentiating them between one of my favorite words,
1: mentorship and precepting. Uh, So... This is taken from a primary source. I'll I'll link it when we post this. So verbatim, quote, preceptorial relationships between a teacher and a student are relatively short and generally span the duration of a course or student rotation, while mentoring involves an intense, a global, long-term relationship between a mentor and the protege, uh, for both professional and personal domains. So we love talking about mentoring. We, we discuss quite often how important it is for both the mentee and the mentor to continue these relationships. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that we understand the difference between precepting, how that's really a short time span. It, it's a, a definitive time set by either a school or a workplace. Where mentoring is an ongoing longitudinal relationship between, I mean, uh, doesn't even have to be a student at any point because I can be a mentee in my professional years as well as a mentee in
0: your school years. So maybe the way that I would look at it is you don't have to precept to be a mentor, but my hope is that if you're precepting, you'll be a mentor, if that makes sense. Yeah. Did I state that right? So, so you could be a mentor at the same time as being a priest. Correct. And I would hope and expect that you would be. And I think that's really what I want to talk about today is if you only get a student for a month, I think typically, usually these rotations are a month long. So there, that's not a lot of time. In my clinic, it's always so frustrating because the way that we do it is we, we do kind of a crawl, walk, run method. So the first week that they're here, they're just observing. We give them lots of assigned reading. The second week that they're here, they start participating in the clinic. And by weeks three and four, we build on that responsibility until they're interviewing patients, helping determine treatment plans. But by week four, we finally feel like they're hitting the ground running. They finally have their feet under them and then they leave. So in these short durations of time, if they're only with us for a a month, how can we still serve as a mentor? How can we make sure that we're not just there to teach them clinical, but also how to pour into them in terms of career development type of stuff, because I think that's a really big part of it, too, is showing them not only how to be proficient in their skill set, but also how to manage a career in a way that's going to be meaningful and purposeful.
1: There is a lot that can go into precepting, and there is should be a minimal standard, and that's usually set by the school or the workplace. Uh, Maybe we could talk just a little bit about the different areas of precepting, Mike. Uh, because it may change how we do carry out our preceptor responsibilities. So, for example, when we have hands-on versus knowledge-based versus education, is there, uh, how I've broken them down. So hands-on, I would say, would be surgical or emergency medicine or primary care, uh, knowledge-based. I think of specifically in pharmacy, we had poison control centers that you could have educational experience at or drug information, or even industry, and then educational being academic or research. How would you expect relationship or even the role of the preceptor to change based on these three areas, hands-on,
0: knowledge-based, and educational? I'm so glad you brought this up because I'm actually encountering it this week. So this week, I we had the holiday yesterday, so it's already a short week. And then later this week, I'm traveling. And normally when I travel, we here at, at my job, we kind of precept by committee. We've got a bunch of different providers. We take a ton of students and we'll usually each day assign a student to a different provider. And I really think that that's valuable because they get different exposure, different patient population, but then also get to see how different providers do things, especially in psychiatry where it's maybe more art versus uh, algorithmic. But this week is a little bit different because not only am I out of town, but almost the entire office is away at a conference. So there's limited clinical work going on, but that doesn't mean that preceptorship can't happen. And I think that's really the key is not only is there good hands-on, you know, clinical work or precepting, but there's a really high value of teaching students these other aspects of it, whether it be like you said, knowledge base. Maybe they're taking courses, maybe they're doing certifications, but then also the educational side. I love anytime I'm out of the office or if we have a slow day, I'll assign my students some sort of research-based activity. And a big reason for that is I think it's a really, really important thing for people that are in healthcare, especially licensed professionals, to understand how to synthesize a research study. So if you go to PubMed and you look up a meta-analysis, Being able to understand whether it's a good quality assessment or not, because that's not a skill set that everyone has, but then also to understand the process, the scientific process or the process of scientific inquiry of, you know, identifying a hypothesis then trying to test it out. So very often I'll have my students identify a case that maybe they took an interest in and then write it up as a case study. I really like to encourage my students to think about different things that may work well as a poster presentation and then try and write up a poster and submit it. Not because they're necessarily going to be doing hard, you know, hard-hitting research that's going to be super innovative. We're not in a four-week rotation going to have them do, you know, a prospective clinical trial, but even just a case write-up or even just a quick uh, 10-minute presentation that they give to us or to their peers on treatment-resistant depression or emerging therapies in that field gives them at least some exposure and tie in to those other areas of medicine, but also other areas that will make them a better clinician, not just the hands-on aspect of their career, which is patient care. I'm really glad
1: that you brought up how to perform effective research and how to evaluate uh, these studies. Because if, if I was to tie all three of these areas of precepting uh, into one statement it would be let's make sure that the students go home with the knowledge of how to find the answer. Uh, not that you need to know all the answers to every question I, I ask of you, but I do expect that you know how to find the answer. Uh, that is the most important thing any student can take away from their education. I will I'll bring up this story again. I've, I think I've brought up m- multiple times that when I went into clinical pharmacy at the hospital, I didn't think I was qualified to do it. I thought they were taking a huge risk. And when I sat in the office with the director, I said, yeah, you know, like, I understand that I I didn't do my my PGY one and I went on to make excuses as as to why I didn't, I wasn't sure that I was qualified. Really, I, I was making an excuse as to why they shouldn't me in a sense. It's odd. Uh, But at the end, he kind of stopped me. He said, you know, John you graduated from the pharmacy school. uh, So I know that you know how to find the answers. What we're looking for is a good team member. And that really changed my perspective on what this is all about. What precepting is, is setting people up, uh, setting students up for when they enter into the workplace, they know how to be a good team member and know how to find the answer when they that they don't know it off the top of their head, which most
0: of us don't. It's interesting you bring that up because this morning, as I was sipping coffee, one of the articles that I read, because I try and maybe take five or 10 minutes even in the mornings and at least just look and see what's in my inbox in terms of newsletters or different articles. I often will not read them, but tag them for later. But one of the articles that came through was an assessment of chat GPT's accuracy in making diagnoses and it did i think it hit at about 70 percent for primary care and emergency medicine but then struggled with differential diagnoses so the takeaway is chat gpt is not ready to replace us but it's coming and i think our roles as clinicians are going to change drastically and it really ties into what we've talked about as well of just advocacy for our professions because i think about a hundred years ago when the when the um you know kind of the modern Training model of medicine was developed. The idea was that physicians needed to go to school for years and years and years and years because they had to be experts in their field. And that's certainly still the case. You know, I, I'm not here advocating that neurosurgeons should go to school for less time. I'm very happy that they go to school for a very long period of time. But it's also a completely different educational um, environment at this stage because even in the 11 years that I've been doing this, up to date has been around the entire time. The internet has been around my entire career. So I'm always able to quickly look something up. If I don't know a reference range, if I don't know a treatment algorithm, it's at my fingertips on my phone. And even 30 years ago, you know, the generation before us did not have that. So the importance of making sure that not only they retained what they learned didactically, but then also were able to quickly access it, you know, and have reference books, things like that, it was really critical. Where now I can do a Google search and I could probably figure out the answer, much less using up-to-date or these more um, you know, focused uh, databases. But even that is now going to change, where AI may replace even the need for me as a clinician to understand how to search for something or how to look for something. It's, it's intriguing because as we're talking about it within the role of precepting, it's not that we shouldn't spend time teaching them clinical medicine. That's obviously a very important part of training. And doing it hands-on is far more valuable than just learning in a classroom. But at the same time, when I precept, I continue to put more and more focus or importance on making sure that they understand how to talk to patients, making sure that students understand the importance of therapeutic alliance. So in psychiatry, for those of you that aren't in mental health, there's a lot of research that shows that one of the biggest factors that drives good outcomes is the relationship with the provider. And that even in one of the studies, patients that were on placebo but identified a positive relationship with their psychiatrist outperformed patients that were on active drug. So those are the things that I really emphasize in the rotation, not because the clinical work is unimportant, but rather, at least in my mind, as they become professionals, as they graduate, the world is going to continue to change where information is just going to become easier to access and potentially in the next 10 to 20 years. AI may take over in terms of diagnostic abilities. So if we're not even making diagnoses anymore, but rather just implementing some level of treatment plan, then it's really going to change how we do that. And I want to make sure that as a teacher, I'm at least acknowledging or thinking about that. I do try to focus
1: on that with my students as well. Uh, Specifically, I think when we were in school, Mike, how much time did you spend on learning how to cite correctly? And then you were stressing, like, oh my. That I put the colon in the right place? The semicolon. Like now you can go on PubMed and just click cite, and it does the whole thing for you. And it's it, for people who didn't have to do it. It's really amazing. So I'm not going to try and sit down with my students and say, this is how you cite correctly. It's like you can figure that out yourself. What I want you to know is when somebody asks you a question, whether or not you recognize that you do or do not know like that's that's really the base of it for me is don't make stuff up because i will i'll call you out um and i I've, I've done that before so let's uh, let's dive a little bit deeper then into why we precept and what the social impact of preceptorship is um because there we have to have a reason behind doing it if if you're not interested in precepting uh you see no reason to do it even after we have this conversation probably shouldn't be a preceptor because you're not putting the time and effort into the next uh, generation of practitioners. So this is an anecdote from an opinion piece from Nursing Times last year. Anecdotally, the evidence showed that good preceptorship positively impact uh, staff recruitment and retention during the first critical two years uh, of a nurse's career. And to help support staff, build resilience, and makes them feel valued uh, members of the team. I think that's a great concise way to state what precepting really is: is to give a relational support for a student. So not only for the student themselves, but for the workplace. It, we can really build a more positive workplace if we precept correctly, because it gives a base understanding of what a student. How they should practice when they get into their.
0: Agreed. And once again, not just clinical, but also how to manage subordinates, how to interact with other members of the team, how to address disagreement or conflict. I think as preceptors, if we are including our students in how the sausage is made, you know, I, I used to, we we haven't now because our team just gets, is getting bigger and it's hard, but I used to have the students sit in on staff meetings. And they would just sit in the back. And a lot of times the staff meetings were not clinical. It was discussing workflow issues. It was discussing personnel issues. And yet I thought it was really valuable for the students to see that. So I I think you're absolutely dead on. I think that that quote is dead on where a good preceptor is really doing a lot to advance that student and have them be prepared so that they can hit the ground running on day one.
1: So we are essentially supporting the growth of incoming professionals when we practice uh, correctly as a preceptor. But for ourselves too, this may give an opportunity for somebody who wants to move into management, uh, managing people. This really does flex your understanding and abilities in a leadership aspect. So you get to practice your professionalism uh, and Really, probably most importantly as a manager or a leader is how to perform feedback and performance management. As a leader, we don't really get the practice ahead of time until we hit those hard situations. And it's usually human resource issues that we struggle with most as managers. Well, as a preceptor, you you get to practice being a manager or a leader in your workplace without the massive impacts of how that can affect the team long term. Because as we mentioned before, most of the time, this is going to be a short term, maybe four to six week block if it's an advanced practice or maybe a semester long, depending. But that relationship does technically end and you don't have to continually having to manage this potential student who is doing great or needs a lot of extra support. That's more more the feedback and. Inform- performance management but when we talk about professionalism mike you and i are very different we've said this many times on the podcast your base professionalism was probably easier for you to when you transitioned into the workplace than it was for me uh because you are more how would you say mike you're more uh milk did you say milk toast no military (laughs) milk toast Yeah,
0: that's what it is, I think, is, uh, you know, aside from that good German stoicism that you always mock, uh, the army, I think very much so doing ROTC in college and then, you know, being an officer, a leadership is the focus from day one, but also just that I think that transition to a professional workforce from college is a much easier one.
1: I wasn't challenged much with my professionalism until I started precepting and then started managing Uh, my own pharmacist that was a tough transition for myself uh, especially when you have to come out of being a people pleaser into uh, managing workflow for your your workplace it's it's a whole new beast so I think if you're interested in becoming a leader in your workplace start by precepting if you haven't because you'll see where your gaps in knowledge are And I'll wrap this part up by saying, why else do we precept? It's really a great pathway to evaluate potential job candidates. How many people have you worked with, Mike, uh, that you precepted in the past or at least knew as a student because working with them in some aspect?
0: I think our last four hires have all been former students. So it is almost our exclusive way to hire now these days because it allows us to have an entire month with them. You know, it's, it's really hard to to hide things over a period of a month. So we get to know them quite well. Um, and then it allows us as an employer to to have a really high level of comfort as that student comes in, knowing that they're going to be a good fit for the team, knowing that their abilities are there. It allows us to have this really um, extensive internew- interview process. I'd like to actually circle back because y- you went through some things that I'd like to go through in a little bit more detail because I'm, I'm intrigued by them. You talked about Guidance, feedback, professionalism, communication. And we've been talking about the benefits of precepting. We've talked about, you know, different ways that it can help us professionally as individuals. But I'd like to pause on these three topics and just talk about them a little bit because I think these are ones that have dual benefit. If you are very intentional in the guidance that you give to the students, in how you present it from a professional standpoint, you know, are you going to be buddy buddy with the students? Are you going to have it be more hierarchical? Um, But then also feedback. How do you address deficiencies? How do you talk to the student about things that they're maybe not doing well? These are all things that I think are really important for you as a preceptor to be intentional and ensure that you're setting yourself up to be successful in taking students. But also for the student, I think it's very important because having these things in place really is the definition or the difference between a good and a bad rotation, not only for their experience, but also for their learning. So let's go through them one by one. And I'd like to dive a little deeper and get your thoughts. Can we talk about guidance? So this is one that's near and dear to me because I'm actually revamping our student guidebook. So we actually have a, a little orientation book that just goes through, you know, what to expect, what, what each week is going to look like. We've, we've kind of reflected and recognized that Gen Z needs a little bit of a different approach. And we've had some feedback from students that in some of the tasks assigned, they don't understand why we're assigning those tasks in terms of learning objectives. And initially my gut reaction to that was, oh my goodness, these entitled bratty little students that they need to understand the why. They they want to know what they're going to learn from each task assigned. They need to just, you know, know their place and understand that if we're assigning them this task, it's for a reason. And I reflected on it a little bit and I realized that I'm a big Simon Sinek guy. And his big thing is understand the why. And if you want to find purpose, if you want to find meaning in your career, you look for the why behind it. And we shouldn't treat students any differently. That it's, you know, their precepting or their clinical rotation is really the start of their career or very early on in it. So it's completely reasonable to try and tie them into that and have them understand why each task is being assigned. So through that, I'm trying to revamp our guidebook so that not only it says in week one, you'll be doing this. But it says in week one, you'll be doing this. And here is what we hope and expect you to learn from this task. So it's a huge pain in the butt because it's it's a big expansion of of our guide because we have to under, give the underlying reasons for things. But I'm hoping in the long run, it'll actually help make the rotation more meaningful for students. Did you ever enter into a college classroom where the syllabus said, these are our learning objectives
1: for the semester, A, B, C, D, and you look at that huge amount of information and You think, how How in the world am I going to get all of this information? How am I going to be able to finish these tasks and feel confident at the end of it that I know what I'm talking about? But then you go through the tests, you go through the classroom, the didactic portion, you think this was much easier than they made it sound like in the defined objectives. I know that happened to me multiple times and even times where I saw the objectives and this looks super easy and then end up being some of the more difficult classes. It's not just stating what your objectives are, but going through them, having a level set with your students, sitting down at the beginning and saying, these are the objectives and this is what I really mean by them. This is what I truly expect. It's not just written down at the end of this this is how I'm going to test you on this. This is how I'm going to evaluate you. Um, these are my base expectations. It's just not written down. So I, I think it's, first of all, very important that you sit down with them at the beginning and verbally tell them what your expectations are.
0: What a great point that not only do we want to put objectives and here's the reason why, but also how we're going to be assessing the student. I think that's so important because if the student doesn't understand what areas we're, we're going to be judging them that can make it very difficult. Now, part of that, you know, you have to be careful because I, I, so often in medicine, I think you see students that just study for the test, right? They they know this is what's going to be on the test. So that's what I'm going to study. And in a clinical rotation, that's completely different because the evaluation may be more holistic. It may be of the entire student, not of just these specific learning points, but at the same time, as we just discussed, so maybe in my situation where I've talked about how much I want to emphasize the non-clinical aspects of their rotation, patient interaction, learning research methods, things like that, I want to make sure that up front I'm stating that. I really emphasize this. This is something that I think is super important and not every clinical rotation will provide this. So I will be assessing you also based on your growth within these areas. John, let's switch over to feedback because I think we kind of talked about communication already a little bit, but I'd like to talk specifically about feedback and I'd love your thoughts on how do you give feedback to a student that maybe is not meeting expectations? Because I think the as a preceptor, the temptation is always there to just, you know, go along to get along and just pass the student. Uh, I only have them for a month. So if this student isn't very good, I'll just, I won't say anything. I'll, I'll grade them, you know, moderately and then pass them on and let them be someone else's problem. And I think that's a huge issue in medicine because the clinical rotations are really there not just to weed out incompetence. By the time you get to clinical rotations, you should be competent. But the clinical rotations are really where we would hope to forge these students into effective practitioners. And they're not going to get there without critical feedback. So I'd love your thoughts on how do you have those tough tough conversations?
1: I, I'm, I've become very good at it, Mike. And it was because of a lot of failure, I can tell you. I read this book called Radical Candor. How to Be a Kick-Ass Boss, and I, I may have told the story on a past podcast, but I read this book, got about halfway through, loved some of the stuff that was said, and I thought, wow, I've got a student right now who really needs some candor, some candor, some really radical candor. So I sat them down and gave them the one-two, uh, pretty much said, you're not going to make it. Uh, you, got, you have to change what you're doing because as of right now, you will not be hired. It broke the person. It, I should have read the rest of the book beforehand because you have to set them up after the fact. <laughs> like, you could say all that, but you have to make sure you structure their growth underneath that. I kind of left it hanging and said, like, these are the expectations. Meet it or beat it, you know? Um, I just came up with that. So that was, that was intended to be on the fly because we took them out of the department, sat them down, went over expectations and said, this is how you're not meeting it. But there should be a very well, uh, well-intended and well-structured way to give feedback that the student is expecting. Structured versus on the fly. You should let them know, we're going to structure this this way. If you're here for six weeks, um, once a week, we'll sit down for a half hour and we'll go over how this last week went. Uh, where you succeeded, where you didn't meet expectations and what we need to do for the following week versus on the fly. There are times when things cannot wait. Um, You have to give them feedback right then and there. And probably the best way uh, to give an example of this is if they have a poor interaction with a patient. Uh, If something is said that's maybe unethical, maybe it is unprofessional, uh, you might even have to pull them out of the patient meeting and say, well, we we just have to take a second, walk out and say, listen, you cannot ask about personal things like that or uh, that was inappropriate for this reason. Uh, I know this is hard to hear, but you cannot ask that type of a question and we'll talk about it later. You might need to cut things off at the head. A given point, but most things can probably wait. You could probably allow them to fail a little bit and then bring those issues up in the stru- in a structured aspect at the end of the week. Uh, and we probably should delineate between constructive and destructive feedback because constructive feedback means you're identifying what the situation was. You're staying with the situation. It's almost like stars, like we interview. What's the situation? What was your task at hand? What action did you create? And how should you should you have responded to this? You can take that same interview aspect and 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 restructure how the situation went with the student. Destructively, though, I mean, you could just say, hey, you really sucked at that conversation. Maybe you need to go on YouTube and find out how to communicate better with humans. Like, yeah, you you could say that, but that's not really guidance. That's just beating up on the student. Uh Let's make sure that we give them really good information, uh, maybe some stories of where you might have failed and where you succeeded following that. Give them some hope that the reason why you're giving this feedback is to make them a better practitioner.
0: Yeah, I think the way that I approach this, and I'm blunt, which is a a character flaw of mine maybe, but one of the ways that I try to do it is I try to do sustains and, and improves at the same time. So that's a military term, but when in the military, anytime you do a training or anything, you do kind of an after-action assessment where you sit down and you say, "Okay, what went well? What went poorly? How can we improve it?" And I try and take the same approach with students, where we'll sit down and I think having those dedicated times to sit with the student and have feedback is really good. On the fly, absolutely works. Hey, it'll make make an adjustment in how you're documenting and charting, but sitting down and saying, here are the things I think you're doing well. Here are the things I think that you're not meeting the standard or maybe you can improve upon. And I also like to caveat to my students, I, I take pride in being quite critical of you because this is the time for you to hear feedback and learn and grow and improve. So sometimes I'll even talk to students and say, I think you're meeting the standard. You're not behind. But here's an area where I think you can become even better just in an effort to continue to give them things to, to improve and grow on. And sometimes there's students that come through here. It's really difficult to find things to identify for them to work on because the students are really impressive. But I think having something to say, this is my feedback. This is where you can improve. This is where you continue to grow to become the best prepared provider that you can be is a really important thing. So I always like to accompany it with positive feedback as well. But I think everybody's going to have a different style. Everyone's going to have a different approach.
1: We have to adapt to your student needs. Uh, You're going to have outgoing students who it's very easy to talk to, and they may even ask for feedback. I I was one of the students who, I want feedback. I don't care if it's negative. Uh, Give me as much feedback as you can so I can improve. But I've had students who won't say a peep, even when you're talking, like saying, hey, you are doing this and I need you to stop doing this. And they just nod and just look at you and they keep doing the same thing. It's like, okay, I, yep, <laughs> that doesn't work. You have to find a better way to do it. And sometimes, I mean, that's where the, on the fly, I've had those types of students and you have to just in front of this, in front of the patient sometimes just for them to get it, to say, um, actually it's this. And you explain it in front of the, the patient, and it may be a little embarrassing for the student, and they may even approach you say, hey, that was embarrassing. Be like, yeah, well, you said the incorrect thing. You you were not correct, and we are here to be a source of information for these patients. And I've told you this many times before, but you're not adjusting. So I can't let the patient go away thinking A when it, they're supposed to be thinking B. Right. And it, it should snap some of these people back in. So ad- adapting really is what I'm uh, what we're trying to get at is there will be styles that you you will need to adjust to. And that's part of being a good preceptor is noticing where your student needs help and adjusting to them because they have personal needs as well. Love it. You want to switch to personal items? Yeah, let me... Uh, I'll go first this time. Okay. All right. So we all know that I almost tore my thumb off with a a uh, wood carving tool, but my birthday was, was just this last weekend and my brother dropped by and got me a present and he bought me a Dremel, uh, which my wife was really nervous about thinking I was going to drill through my finger. Uh, I, I assured her that it's not as dangerous as the wood <laughs> carving tools, but I've spent hours now carving this walking stick for my son and i wanted the head of it to look like gandalf staff with the roots coming up and like twisting mike i'm spending hours hours in the barn with this dremel this thing is wicked looking so once i'm done with it i'll post a picture so you guys can be uh i don't know what you're imagining right now but it's more impressive than you probably think and i'm just gonna tote on myself
0: second. well yeah i i think a Dremel is probably a, a lower risk tool for you. So I'm very appreciative that you'll you'll maintain all your 10 digits with the Dremel at least. So I think my personal item is maybe that school starting back up. I had to think about this one for a little bit, but it's funny because, you know, the the old running joke is always that parents are dying for school to start up. And I feel that to some degree, you know, the the summer is wonderful. And it's amazing, but I think the kids will definitely do better with structure. The kids uh, need some authority figures in their life that's not mom and dad. But at the same time, I think there's an excitement there just because all four of my kids, my youngest is uh, in daycare, not, but all four kids are really excited for school to resume. They're excited for their teachers. They're excited to see their friends again. So it's really fun because no one is dreading their return to school. Everybody is counting down the days and it's a big, exciting thing. So it's fun to, to not only see the light at the end of the tunnel where babysitting gets a lot easier for us. We don't have to, to put together a patchwork of high school and college kids to come over and watch the boys while we're at work. But also just to get back into that rhythm of, you know, the kids being in school and, and having structure, having all kinds of fun, exciting stories to tell at the dinner table each day from school. And to hear, you know, all the drama from the seven-year-old's class about what girls hate what boys and yada yada. So I'm really looking forward to school starting back up. I'm really looking forward to maybe getting uh, some more time back to myself of having a little bit more structure in the day for the kids and and having that be a little bit better. So there's maybe not less parenting, but uh, more structured parenting. But yeah, I, I can't wait. So it's kind of fun. So we're all looking forward to school starting this week and... The kids and the parents are equally as excited, which I guess is a good thing.
1: I kind of understand the whole mimosa after the kids are on the bus deal. I never understood. I thought oh, it's lame. Why are these parents doing it? No. Once you have all your kids in school and you, it's been 10 years since you've been alone. Yeah.
0: Mimosas. Exactly. Yeah. We're we're still a couple years away from all the kids being in school, but the youngest is in daycare. So this week, um, all four of them will be going off somewhere during the day. So that's a really exciting thing. Well, thank you, everyone. This is White Coats of the Roundtable. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing, even leave us a review. If you don't like what you hear, definitely don't review us. Until next week, this is Mike and John. Have a great week, everybody.